Thank you so much, Jeremy and Linda. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, it's a longer text today. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of a, of a principle that's found in the Christian faith, and it's a principle that affects all of us. Most of us fail to realize that we have a very hard, stubborn heart toward the things of God. Uh, we tend to think that we're fine, but we're resistant to the things of God. That's the default position of the sinful nature. That's illustrated in this story that I am going to read to you. Uh, I read it this week about a bull that loved to chew his cud while sitting beneath a shady tree. That particular tree was located just a stone's throw from a set of railroad tracks, and every time the train came blowing by, it would disturb the bull's afternoon nap and frustrate him. So this bull had, had all that he could take, became agitated, agitated, and decided one day he was going to take action. He heard the train blowing. Its whistle was a mile down the way. So he decided he was going to go out in the middle of the railroad tracks and take this train on head on. As you can guess, a few minutes later, the conductor of that train was cleaning what remained of that animal from the front of the locomotive. And when he had done that, he tipped his cap to the bull and said, Bull, I admire your courage, but I question your judgment. The preacher then said, Most people are just like that bull. They refuse to fear God and will end up one day facing God's judgment. Hard-heartedness. The funny thing about hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness is though it resists God, God loves the hard-hearted person. God loves the broken-hearted person. God loves the hard-hearted person. God loves us and sent his son Jesus to die for us. Just by way of review, last week we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas helped set a woman free. And for their reward, the magistrates came after them, punished them, beat them with rods, and threw them in prison. And as Corey alluded to earlier, when they were in prison, they began to sing praise and glory to God. Sometimes God will allow us to get in situations that we don't like. Do you know that? We tend to think that our wisdom is greater than God's wisdom and that it's not fair. God, why were you putting me in this situation? Paul and Silas are trying to serve you. They, they set a woman free, and for their reward, you threw him in prison. It's the same thing that happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. He said no to Potiphar's wife, and for his reward, he was thrown in prison. You've got to remember that our God is a lot bigger than we think he is. And when we say bigger, we mean perfect in his attributes, powerful in his disposition, and perfect, perfect in wisdom. He does not make mistakes. And that's the God we want to entrust our lives to. So here's Paul and Silas sitting in prison and praising God after going through some terrible suffering. God sends this earthquake and some amazing things happen. They get set free. God rescues his kids at his perfect time in his perfect way. We don't give up. We don't complain. We give the Lord glory. And then God moves on our behalf. That was the story we talked about last week in last week's sermon. We're going to pick it up here, uh, as Phyllis read a little earlier, in verse 27. There was a jailer in the jail that they were in who woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now this jailer, let's just look at him for a second. He was probably a Roman, retired Roman soldier. It was very common for Roman soldiers who had seen a lot of battles, seen a lot of war, seen a lot of heartache, seen a lot of pain. Toward the end of their 
careers go to a position like this where they can serve a function, make a paycheck, and take care of their families. But in the commentaries that you read, they would say about jailers, they were hard-hearted people. They were rough. They were tough. They were resistant. They had seen so much bad stuff in their lives that they had developed a disposition of hardness. You ever run into folks like that? You say hi and they're grumpy. Yeah. Whatever. If they're a Christian, they have a hard time saying praise the Lord. You know, praise the Lord. You know, it's, it's the disposition that happens because of the hardness of life. And don't think it can't happen to you. But, but as I said a little earlier, God loves all of us, even those that have hard hearts. Life may not have been fair. Life have, might have treated you roughly. But God still loves you. And he is allowing the Apostle Paul and Silas to go through all this stuff for a jailer. For somebody that the culture might say is insignificant. I mean, this guy's in the jail. He's caring for prisoners. Do you know what he'd probably hear all the time? The words that they would say. The harsh conditions. Can't get out a lot. Uh, There was a punishment if a prisoner escaped. And that punishment would be execution. So he not only had a rough job, but he had to do it well. And you can see kind of a disposition developing of grumpiness or bitterness or hardness of heart. And it's a disposition that God wants to change. And if you're here today with a hard heart, you feel like life's not been fair, God wants to change your disposition as well. And we'll see how he does it through this jailer. So if you're following along the outline, let's see this story that takes place with this jailer. I've entitled the message, A Jailer Meets Jesus. Point number one, the first thing we see here is the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin. This is a lost art in the church these days. We're so busy entertaining folks that we have forgotten what this means. So let's look at it. Uh, We see the jailer when he saw that the prison doors were open because of the earthquake. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. The apostle Paul stopped him saying, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now you would think after the apostle Paul had been suffering and had been beaten with rods, he would escape at the first moment's notice. But the apostle Paul knew God was up to something. And he didn't leave when he could have left because he was concerned about this jailer. He said, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. I want you to see the response of this jailer. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. That word trembling there could be connected to being convicted of our sins. Something was going on on the inside of this jailer due to the external circumstances that he found himself in. And the same way, you might be here this morning and your external circumstances may be good or bad, but what's going on on the inside of you? He was having, maybe he had heard Paul and Silas singing. Maybe he had just had enough of all the stuff he had seen through the years. We don't know, but something happened on the inside of him, which means God was working on him. In the same way God is working on some of us here today. Other people can't see our hearts, but God can. And God is looking at our hearts and he's wanting to change a hard heart, a heart resistant to him, to a tender heart. So that we'll love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. God's in the changing heart business. And he is allowing Paul and Silas to go through all of the stuff that they went through for an old, hard-hearted jailer. Now, let's look at this word trembling for a second. Because this is where our hard hearts come in. If God ever convicts us of a sin, something we've done wrong, what do we do? 
We get a hard heart. Ah, it's not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I didn't do it. I could have done it worse. Besides, God doesn't care. He'll forgive me. That's his job, isn't it? And his job just to forgive me and let's just move on, forget that it ever happened. God hates sin, the Bible says. He's grieved by it. And when we choose to sin, we forfeit his blessing upon our lives. Sin has consequences. It was the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who said, every time a Christian sins, we forfeit a heavenly reward. Every time. God takes sin seriously, even if we don't. But what you see here is conviction of sin. Now, let's just use an Old Testament illustration here. Remember King David? King David uh, had an affair with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And he hid it in his heart for eight months. You know, he was successful in covering up his sin. And that's what most of us do. We're successful at covering up our sin. Until that moment in time when God shows up on the inside. And when God shows up on the inside, he taps us on the soul and says, you've waited long enough, it's time to deal with this. And through a series of events, we're, we're reminded in Psalm 51 how David responded to that tapping on the soul. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He admitted it, they had sinned. For I know my transgression and my sin is, only, is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What's happening is here is David's soul is agreeing with God about his sin, and he's convicted. We're starting to see the chiseling of a hard heart, the melting, the defrosting of a cold, callous heart toward God. Here's this jailer falling before Paul and Silas, trembling. Let me tell you something. If you look at the history of the church and you look at revivals, you're going to see this principle taking place. A trembling of soul. You're not concerned about what people think of you. You're concerned about what God Almighty thinks of you. You're concerned about what your life like is, is like in the eyes of God, not the eyes of men, for we can fool people. But we can't fool God. God sees our hearts. And if you truly want to be one of his children and love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you got to do business on his terms. We can't make up our own rules. David found that out. He was in agony on the inside, though he, might have, on the inside, though he may have had a smile for everybody to see on the outside. And that's the way many people come to our churches all across this country every Sunday. Hi, how you doing? The weather's great, great. How are you? Fine. But on the inside, we're dying. God is convicting us of our sin. And, and you have this supernatural divine moment where God sends an earthquake because two guys who had just been beaten are singing songs to the Lord for an old-hearted jailer. See, in Acts chapter 9, God gave Paul in that Damascus Road experience a very unusual word. He said, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul knew that this was part of his job description. He was going to suffer. And it's for people like that. And sometimes God will cause you and I to go through things for people just like this too. Maybe you're the jailer here today and you've got a hard heart and you don't think life's fair. Jesus died for you. Um, I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yes, I'm a Yankee for those that didn't know. 
And I went to a high school, a junior high school called Nitchman Junior High School. And that was named after Anna Nitchman, the wife of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Count von Zinzendorf. Right down the street was a college called Moravian College. And if you know anything about the history of the Moravians, uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf was the founder of that. Now, he was a man of great wealth, had a lot of money when he was young. And the story goes, he spent it well in his pleasures. He liked his money and he liked his toys and he spent it accordingly until one day he was in the Düsseldorf or Düsseldorf uh, German art gallery and as he walked by he saw a picture and it was a picture of Jesus Christ crowned with thorns and I won't say the Latin uh, translation uh, the Latin uh, subscription to it but it said this I have done for thee what hast thou done for me and, and Nicholas von Zinsendorf just stared at that picture he just stared at it this I have done for you. What have you done for me? And here's this wealthy guy spending all of his worldly pleasures on worldly, all of his wealth on worldly pleasures. And he came under conviction of sin. From one little saying. And that can, same thing can happen to you. You can come under conviction of sin for one saying. Well, the story goes that he decided from that point forward he was going to give his life to Jesus Christ. Consequences be what they may. And history tells us that the greatest missionary movement that ever came across this earth came from Nicholas von Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Because one guy walked across, saw a picture, and was convicted of his sins. Let me tell you something. When God convicts you of something, it's not to do you harm, it's to do you good. He's trying to get something out of your life to replace it with something righteous in your life. Are you going to let him do it, or are you going to retain your hard heart? Because let me tell you, God's far bigger than a locomotive. And you're going to lose that battle if you retain that hard heart. Point number two. Why does God give us conviction of sin? Secondly, for the conversion of the soul. Simply put, you matter to God. Do you know that? You see, some folks have a hard heart and they say, yeah, I got all this religion stuff down. But they've never met Jesus. We see it all in the, in the New Testament. We see the Pharisees, we see the Sadducees, they were authorities on religion, but they didn't know God. John 17 says, what is eternal life? To know him. Do you know him? That's why we get convicted of our sins, to know him. And to know him, there needs to be a spiritual regeneration in our hearts. We call that conversion. Look what it says in verse 30. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's asking a question. I want to get right with God. I need help here. I don't know what to do. You obviously have something I don't. You're singing when you just got beaten. There's something on the inside of you that I want. And by the way, Christian, people are watching your behavior when God allows some difficult circumstances to come into your lives. What do we do? Complain? Bicker? Groan? God, this isn't fair. God could be very well trying to use you to reach an old-hearted jailer. And what if they had just sat there and said, this isn't fair, this isn't right. I'm not going to sing the songs of Zion. I'm going to sing the curses of this world, like the rest of the prisoners, like everybody else is doing. This hard-hearted person wouldn't have been affected at all. People are looking for the change that Jesus made in your heart so there can be a change in their heart. And notice what he says here. What must I do to be saved? Well, the Apostle Paul gives them the answer in verse 31. He gives them the plan of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and you and your household. It's interesting because if you look at the jailer's question, it's in the continuous tense. 
He's saying, what must I continually do to be saved? It's a, it's a salvation of works. And Paul contrasts that by saying, no, it's not by works. It's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. And if your children and your household be saved, you'll be saved too. In other words, here's simply how we say the gospel. When you're convicted of sin, that means you're a sinner. Can, can you say today that you're a sinner? If you're a sinner, the Bible says that you need a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And you must accept Him as the change agent in your life for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how we meet God. It's not by our works, but it's placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Has there ever been a time in your life when you do that? One of the things I've learned through the years is there are people that say they've done that. They've never done it. I'll never forget when I was at the University of Florida in college, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me tell this story before. My college and career pastor's name was Steve Creighton. And we'd sing you know, all these songs at Sunday school in the morning. And after about a year or two, he gets up in front of the whole church. And he says, I have gone to church my whole life, my whole life. But I never asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. He'd been to seminary. He said, but I never got Jesus. I, I never did it personally. I did it because I had to. My parents made me go to church. You know the old story? I had a drug problem when I was little. My parents drugged me to Sunday school, drugged me to church, drugged me to Wednesday night prayer meeting. He said, I was one of those people. I was always in church, but I never asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And man, here I am in college watching my college and career pastor get baptized. A guy who'd been trained at seminary because he said he was a Christian, but he really wasn't a Christian. Can you say you're really a Christian? Is there ever a point in your time when God convicted you of sin, in your life where God convicted you of sin, and you got converted? You said, you know, I need a Savior. I'm giving my heart to Jesus Christ. That's the hello to the Christian faith, not the goodbye. That's where regeneration starts. Conversion starts. Notice what it says in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved you and your household as they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Immediately he and all his family were baptized. They believed the message of Paul. And because of Paul's suffering in jail, a jailer and his family became Christians and were baptized. Isn't that amazing? You know, we think there's only one way to get saved. Here's a track. Read it. Let's say the sinner's prayer. Boom. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. It's the supernatural work of God in the heart of a person that changes a person's life. But if you have a hard heart, you say, I don't, want, I don't want anything about conviction. I don't want anything about conversion. I don't want Jesus. I want to be in control of my life. Eventually, my friend, you're going to run into that locomotive and you're going to lose that battle. But I want you to see something that happens to this jailer. Isn't this amazing? Don't you love the beautiful, beautiful teachings of the Word of God? Uh, look at what it says. We just kind of skipped over it in verse 33. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. <laughs> Here's an old, hard-hearted Roman soldier, jailer, who was part of inflicting wounds, now washing wounds. You see, when Jesus comes into a person's heart, that's what happens to that person. If you're really, truly regenerate and saved, you're going to go from causing wounds to healing wounds. The baptismal waters flowed over him and the healing waters flowed through him. And that's what happens to a child of God. You are so enamored, so amazed by the glory of God that you're his and you're going to act like him. 
Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Nothing's beneath the child of God because you are so enthralled with God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. It changes your behavior. Hard-hearted people wouldn't do this. They'd say, that guy, look at the wounds on his back, man. He must be a terrible criminal. He's, what a rotten guy he is. But somebody that saved, man, I see your wounds. I see your hurt. I see your pain. Let me help. Children of God that have been touched by God change people's lives. We may not have all the intellectual answers, but we can offer compassion and concern and care. Here's an old jailer that's been changed by two guys that got whipped. And now he feels compassion for them. That's how you know you've been converted in your soul. You're different. You see things differently. Jesus said it's to the point where you even love your enemies. Do you hold a grudge? Are you angry that life's not fair? Wait a minute. It might not have been fair for Paul and Silas, but they were able to praise the Lord anyway. And by praising the Lord, God said, very well, you've passed this test. Let me show you what's going to happen here. And God shows up and an amazing touch on this guy's life happens. What a beautiful God we serve. Do you know him? He's amazing. Many years ago when I was a, a young man, anybody ever watch football? I mean, I know this all this stuff going on society-wise, but when I was younger, I, uh, I watched football, and there was two guys that I used to listen to. One's name was John Madden, the other name was Pat Summerall. Anybody heard of those guys? If you ever listened to a TV show on football, those voices were very familiar with, uh, very familiar to you. Well, Pat Summerall was, in his own words, a drunk. He said he grew up in an alcohol-filled home, and he was the life of the party for a long, long time. He said, one day I got up, I was at a golf tournament. He said, I've been sick all night. I drank so much I was throwing up blood and I got sick. He said, I looked in the mirror, a mirror and I saw what a terrible sight was. I was and I said, I've got to change. There's the conviction of sin. Something's got to happen here or I'm going to kill myself. I've done funerals for people that have gone through this. This is a very real thing. If you're addicted to alcohol, God can set you free. In his case, he was fighting the battle of addiction. He decided to check himself into the Betty Ford Clinic in Palm Springs, California, where he spent 33 days to try to get the victory over alcohol. While there, he bumped into his former football coach. Many of you remember Tom Landry, the great Dallas Cowboys football coach. Tom Landry said, hey, I'm going to get you in contact with John Weber, who was the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys football team. And in the sovereignty and providence of God, Pat Summerall became a Christian because of his experience of fighting with alcohol and was baptized at the age of 69 years of age. <laughs> Isn't God good? Man, you should be excited about somebody getting set free. They have a lifelong addiction. The jailer might have been in jail. He was physically in a jail. This guy was in an addiction jail. And people that you might know are in some kind of jail, but they don't know how to get free and they're too embarrassed to ask. But God knows the jail that they're in and God is the one that sets us free from the jails that we create for ourselves sometimes. And here's a guy that's baptized. He's set free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same gospel that set free the jailer and his family. 
So if we just ended the story right now, it'd be great. But there's one more point that we need to see. Point number three, the courage to stand. Now, I have a confession to make. There's one area in my life that I'm working on. It's this one. Courage. When you look at this text, it almost seems out of place, but it's not. For somebody who has conviction of sin and somebody who's converted to faith in Jesus Christ, inevitably, we've not been given a spirit of fear, Paul said to Timothy, but there's courage. You're not afraid to stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. But look what it says in verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates, the ones that had beaten Paul, sent their officers to the jailer and we ought to release those men. And the jailers told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. Wait a minute. These are the guys that just one day earlier were beating them. They were Satan's agent of pain and they were beating them. For what? They, they're Roman citizens. They never had a trial. They were being tried unjustly. Sometimes in life, you and I are going to go through these kinds of experiences where it's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, we saw that a little earlier in the text. But verse 37 said, Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. There's your courage. (laughs) I'm not going to let them get away with this. Let them come out themselves and escort us out. Now, one of the commentators that I read said it was contrary to Roman law to beat Roman citizens without a trial. So the magistrates are justifiably stunned. They didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul's insistence on an apology may seem arrogant, but in the first century of honor and shame, public vindication was essential to legitimize Paul and the church he established. The church was founded not by shady Jewish itinerants who slunk out of town, but by esteemed Roman citizens. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to treat us this way. It's the gospel that's at stake, not me. You can't just do this to us. Paul is standing up for them, but he's, he's standing up for the gospel, and he's standing up for you and I even today. He's a picture of what Christians should be in culture. We've got to stand and let our light shine in this culture about Jesus Christ. And oh, I'm jealous of his courage. In other words, we make our decisions based on conviction, not on circumstances. We make a decision because of whose we are, not what we're walking in. Is there anybody here today that wants to stand up for Jesus? Is there anybody today that has the courage to say, I'm a Christian? As we go out these doors today, we'll have ample opportunity to do that, and the world wants to tell us to be quiet. Just like we're putting masks on for COVID, the world wants to tell us to put our spiritual masks on about Jesus and hush. But the Apostle Paul has demonstrated tremendous courage. You've got to stand for Jesus. Let your light shine. Be salt of the earth. Converted people do that. I'll close with this illustration. Many of you remember Columbine, the terrible shooting that happened in Colorado many years ago. This week I was stumbling across the internet and saw a, a story in Wisconsin, Green Bay, about a young man named Matt Atkinson, a senior in high school. Matt Atkinson. Turns out Matt had some friends that wanted to emulate the Columbine attack at their high school. And he found out about it. And decided he was going to have the courage to go tell the administration at the school of what was about to take place. And he did. 
Make a long story short, the school officials went, checked the kids' lockers. Nothing was there. But when they got to the kids' home, they found an arsenal of stuff that they were going to try to do Columbine Part 2 at their school. But one kid stood up and had the courage to say, it can't happen. And the plot was thwarted. And the, the attack never happened. Because of courage. I admire a young man like that, don't you? As you go through this text, the Bible clearly teaches God is looking for people who aren't afraid or ashamed of him. The Apostle Paul said in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. The world wants to tell you to be ashamed of Jesus. Your hard heart wants to tell you, be ashamed of Jesus. But if you've been convicted of sin and converted in your soul, you're going to have the courage to stand for Jesus, these soldiers of the cross. Anybody here being convicted of their sin? Anybody here, God prompting you to be converted in your soul? Anybody here that's been converted, God's telling you it's time to stand for Jesus in a world that wants you to be quiet? That's the lesson of our text. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are a good and holy God. I pray, dear Lord, that you'll take this message today, burn it in our hearts, and Lord, lead it. Uh, let it be a guide for us as we go through this week. Lord, there are a lot of hard-hearted people out there. May they know that you're loved, and may you allow us to have the courage to go through the circumstances that are needed to reach them in the jails of their lives. Thank you that you're a good God that sets us free. Forgive us, O Lord, when we're self-centered. Forgive us, O Lord, when we demand to be in control. Forgive us, O Lord, when we think we have the right to tell you what to do. Your word tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I pray that your fear, O God, the fear of you will be prevalent in our hearts today so that our hearts will not be hard, but they will be changed toward thee. Father, if there's anybody here today that you've been working on their heart, let them know you love them. Let them know that Jesus died for them. Let them repent. Let them be convicted of their sin. Turn to thee and convert their soul. May they have the courage to stand for Jesus, we pray. In your son's most precious and holy and beautiful name. Amen. During this time of invitation, if God's been speaking to your heart, you come. Is your heart hard? Does your heart need a change? I'll be here at the front. We'll pray together. If God speaks to you, let's go. Let's stand together.